Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, CEO of Levin. We talk about hyperinflation and his experience growing up in Venezuela. We also talk about how he got into Bitcoin and why he believes that hyperinflation is actually more political than we're led to believe. Mauricio, how's everything going? It's going pretty well, man. How are you? It's great to be here. Great to chat with you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, thanks for coming on. And, you know, you have a, quite a remarkable story. And I really want to feature everything. But I mean, where in the world are you right now? And how's it over there? I'm in Toronto at the moment. Mm. It's pretty nice. I mean, the weather is, you know, it's Toronto, it's getting better. I was actually in Vancouver <laughs> over the weekend, which was really exciting because I got invited to what was a real estate conference to talk about the mortgage. And it was, I was basically, my, ourselves and Hive were the only two Bitcoin companies in the whole event. And it was great to be in a non-Bitcoin event for the first time in a really long time and see that there's still a lot of interest alive and kicking in the space for sure. Mm, well, so, wow. So you went to a real estate conference to talk about your products and stuff, which we'll definitely get to. But but let's let's start sort of like with where you're from and everything like that, because sure. I, I find that whole story fascinating. Can you tell us about how you grew up in Venezuela? Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in, in Venezuela, which, you know, some might know, some, some might no, not know. I actually was born in a small town dead in the center of Venezuela called Barquisimeto. It was a town of 4 million people. And I read somewhere recently that when you ask somebody what the best time of their life was, they tend to mention a time when they were 10 years old, because apparently that is the sort of peak or one of the, the, the peak moments of, of your existence as a human. And I actually have a very beautiful memory of growing up in Venezuela, you know, up until say, I would say the, the mid to late 90s, which is coincidentally when I started kind of, you know, becoming more and more aware of the world around me. I was born in 85. And Hugo Chavez, the Venezuela, you know, dictator or, you know, ruler that many of many probably already know, he came to power in 99. So I was actually thinking back to my youth and I actually was never really only I was never really able to participate in a Venezuelan election that didn't have sort of communism on the ballot <laughs> on some way or another, mm. which was pretty fascinating. But I grew up in Venezuela and listen, leading up to Chavez, Venezuela also had a lot of issues. And mm. I don't necessarily like to subscribe to the idea that Chavez was the creator of all the problems Venezuela ever had. Um, mm. He certainly exacerbated it and he created this this really you know, just going back to my memory, what I remember distinctly was when Chavez came in, you started feeling a big divide in the population. He almost made it about you were either with him or against him. And everybody that was against him was, which was just that, was just not as Venezuelan as those that were in favor of him. And so he came into power with, with I would say, a lot of enthusiasm around Venezuela, right? There was a lot of excitement when he first came into power. But some mm. of the things he started to do right after, really, he started to kind of show his true colors very shortly after. One of the big red flags, which pe people ask me, hey, Mao, you know, what in your mind are sort of red flags for, for these types of rulers? Like, what, when should we start getting worried? And I remember distinctly, there was a massive turning point 
when he asked to rewrite the constitution. So Chavez actually rewrote the entire Venezuelan constitution and it gave him superpowers that extended his presidential term from four to six years. It enabled him to reelect himself essentially into infinity <laughs> and uh, change the name of the country, change the flag, change our chest of arms or coat of arms, change the name of the currency, the time zone. Yeah, yeah, he changed a lot of things. Uh, he just wanted to mm. basically make it known that it was his show now. Yeah, sorry, and I'm and I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but like as as he was doing all of this stuff, you know, that's when when inflation really started just skyrocketing. And and you know, if, if I fast forward for, until when we got into Bitcoin or when I get into Bitcoin, which is actually thanks to my youngest brother and my dad. So, I mean, I'm. Should I give you the long story or the short story? <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's pause for a second because yeah. you're growing up and Chavez comes to power and he's changing all of that stuff. What, why would he want to change stuff like the flag or the you know time zone? Like the other stuff kind of makes sense. Yeah, you want to make sure that you can stay in power for a long time. But some of these other ones... Like, yeah. they seem kind of pointless to me. What, oh, what's going on there? Oh, let me tell you, because there's a beautiful stories behind all of them. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. let's start with the coat of arms. So the, uh-huh. the, the coat of arms, the Venezuelan coat of arms had, uh, Simón Bolívar was the, I don't know if you're familiar with Simón Bolívar, but he liberated a lot of Latin America. So Colombia, Bolivia, mm. Venezuela. And he was this great sort of liberator. And he has this great name, many, many countries sort of hold him, particularly Venezuela and, and Colombia, hold them as the founding father, okay? Mm. So his horse was on our coat of arms. And mm. the horse was facing right. The face of the horse mm-hmm. was looking right. Mm. Well, he flipped the horse so that the horse was now looking left because that's where he thought the horse should be looking at, Okay. Uh huh. So that's why we flipped the coat of arms. Now let's go to the flag, okay? The uh-huh. flag gets changed because he decides that there needs to be. So when when Venezuela first got founded, okay, there were seven mm. provinces of Venezuela that decided to come together to join into a one country, kind of similar to where the U.S. Right? Mm. Now he said that these seven stars, which the Venezuelan flag has, were miscalculated because it did not include a nation of indigenous people that were already in the country. So he changed the flag to add an eighth star to do this. Transparently, what everybody thinks he was trying to do, which is kind of reading between the lines, is to show anyone that opposed him in the country that there was essentially nothing he could not do, right? Hmm. And it made a really good point, because as he did this in parallel, he also shut down, I have to go back to the exact number, but Venezuela had thousands of radio stations within his first year. I believe he shut down about 200 or 240 of them. Mm. Of course, all all of those that did not tout his horn or were fully aligned with, mm. with his party. And then the other thing he did was Venezuela had two major broadcasting companies, Radio Caracas mm. Televisión and Venevisión. The most vocal against him was Radio Caracas Televisión. And of course, mm. he shut down that network mm. within five years. And, and just to kind of put it in context, it would be the equivalent of him coming on and literally shutting down NBC or ABC. Like, mm. it's it was that big. 
So, you know, there's a lot of talk now here about, you know, rich people getting involved in the media or so-and-so controlling the media or so-and-so influencing the media. Like, this would be, like, if you if you were to put it on a spectrum, like, you know, totalitarians, like, you know, draft the posts and 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 you know what i'm saying and hire and, mm. and they, they have complete grip of what gets put through the airwaves whereas mm. here i i would say we I, I would say we are still in the sort of you know very amicable stages and sort of very uh, you know you're able to you still have a considerable amount of freedom of press i would say in mm. canada and the u.s mm. well so like how do you justify like just shutting down a, a broadcasting network. I mean, like, did he did he say it's for national security or what? What was the justification and why did so many people go along with it? So the justification at the time was that they were not going to renew. They, they weren't going to shut it down. They just did not. They never renewed their broadcasting license, which came into expiration. I believe it. Like it, it expi- they have to renew it every five or four years or something. And once the mm. account was up for renewal, they did not renew it. And I can't exactly recall what the legal grounds they had for not renewing it. But the fact remains, you know, they didn't renew it. And I think the reality is that before he did all of this, right, he rewrote the Constitution. He, I have to check exactly when he changed the entire legal and court system. So he replaced all of the judges. And uh, and so by the time he the Radio Caracas removal or license, he had already shut down or not shut down, but fully taken over the country's largest oil production company. And mm-hmm. when he was able to do that, because that was that was the sort of the crown jewel of Venezuela. That's what produced all the money. Like to give you a sense, PDVSA when Chavez took over, Petro, PDVSA is is short for Petróleos de Venezuela, so the Venezuelan Petroleum mm-hmm. Corporation. PDVSA was producing 3.5 million barrels of oil per day in 2000, 2002, okay? Mm-hmm. Today, Venezuela produces 700,000 barrels of oil per day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they've, they've completely decimated the oil production company. And mm-hmm. a lot of people thought, so first, his sort of sequence of events was, first, he tried to take over the, the oil company, and he was successful. There was a bit of there was even a, an attempted coup. There was a big, a uh, big protest. Uh, uh, people in PDVSA kind of walked out of their desks and, and kind of shut down the company for about a month, just protesting all the changes that he wanted to do. But he went ahead and did it anyway. Mm. And the funny thing about the commodity world is that when Chavez goes in and decimates one of the biggest oil production companies that were around in the world at the time, what did you think happened to oil prices? <laughs> <laughs> they skyrocketed uh, mm. because of supply concerns. And of course, mm-hmm. this made his budget look even better. And so he basically said, you know, no worries. We're going to be able to make do with all this extra revenue. Like, we're just going to bulldoze over all of you guys and make these changes because these are the changes the country needs. And I was just elected to do just this. And so along, and, and then people kind of start, at the beginning, people were questioning it. But of course, when you start doing the following trade, it beca- this is a very populist trade. So if you show up to a factory right now and you say to the people in the factory, guys, I know the owner is pulling your, you know, I know the owner is abusing you. I know the, mm-hmm. the owner of this factory is taking a lot of profits home. And mm. if we, we can take this 
from this guy and give it all to you guys. What would you guys say to that? And if you think about that from a political standpoint, mm -hmm. the owner of that factory already didn't vote for you most likely. And mm -hmm. you are now turning the 500 people that work in the factory as sure votes, right? Mm. And so this process, this sort of pure numbers game that comes with democracy can be abused. And he kind of figured out a way to do just that. And I think that that's why you were finding so much support because people were just waiting and seeing, okay, well, when is he going to come break the pinata on top of us and we're going to collect all these goodies, right? Because <laughs> that was kind of the, the, the feeling that, that he was going to come in and kind of break up all these businesses and, and give them back to the people. And naturally, that can get a lot of people very excited, mm. but they don't really think about the long-term effects of that. So, so he basically used a lot of the oil revenue as a way to like satisfy the population for some amount of time. And a lot of people, I guess, felt like they were getting ahead somehow or something like that. 100%. And mm. to be very honest with you, Jimmy, like life's, the life of the average Venezuelan on the street, even though it was a mirage or an illusion, did get better. And... Mm. Here's, I'm going to try to like in simplified terms, kind of explain how I mm -hmm. see, you know, the kind of forces that drove this is he comes in, he starts doing all sorts of, you know, what I just mentioned to you, right? So the natural mm -hmm. reaction of people that had businesses was to say, inflation is going to shoot through the roof. I am going to then either close my factory or significantly raise the cost of my goods such that they match production, right? Like so, such that mm. they match my cost of production because the cost of importing things was, was getting very high very quickly because everybody in Venezuela was leaving their bolivares and buying them for dollars. Mm. So as this exchange rate is a skyrocketing, it becomes very difficult for a government to say that they have a great minimum wage. So for example, if the Venezuela minimum wage is set in bolivares at 100 bolivares mm -hmm. per month and inflation goes to 1000% for 3 months in a row and your mm -hmm. official exchange rate becomes 10,000 bolivares to a dollar, then your minimum wage is 10 cents, right? <laughs> and so you can't have that, right? And so what what Chavez did very quickly was he said, I'm going to create a currency control on buying on the purchasing and selling of US dollars. So mm -hmm. he fixes the exchange rate artificially low. He makes the exchange rate to be artificially low, in, meaning that if you want to buy a dollar from the government, you can buy it for two bolivares per dollar. Mm -hmm. But on the street, only a very select few can buy it from the government, right? But on mm -hmm. the street, you could, you know, the cost to buy the same dollar is 10 bolivares. So it costs uh -huh. you five times more. So mm -hmm. by fixing the price, he basically removes the, the question of his, of his minimum wage, right? Because he's going to set the price and it's not going to move. So he knows that he's going to have a great minimum wage to show these development agencies, right? And, and so what happens with the food producers? The food producers start saying, listen, you know, you either give me those two bolivars per dollar, dollar so that I can import food and kind of keep it at the, at the same price, or I'm going to have to basically skyrocket the price of food. Mm. So in essence, 
the same thing that happened with Elizabeth Warren when she said, I'm going to do a probe on turkey prices to, to what turkey prices mm -hmm. were rising. This It started in the exact same way. He says, I'm going to probe chicken producers because I think chicken prices are too high. Okay. Mm -hmm. And chicken producers meet with him and they say, Chavez, you know, it's very difficult for us to put the, the chicken on the, on the shelves at this price. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, you, you know, I can do it. So why don't I buy your companies? Right? Like here's mm -hmm. a check so I can buy your companies. And they say, well, you know, hold on, Chavez, like we can't, you know, we can't really, you know, let, let us try, right? They tried, mm -hmm. they couldn't. So Chavez starts expropriating these chicken producers to essentially subsidize the cost of chicken and beef. So he starts uh, acquiring or not acquiring, expropriating chicken factories and, and, and farm and, and beef factories, et cetera, or farms. Mm -hmm. And he gives them to the workers and he says, hey, workers, go ahead and start producing beef at lower prices. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two months go by, workers are unable to produce the beef at lower prices because, because guess what? You can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he says, and then what happens is that you start seeing shortages of chicken, shortages of beef. Mm. And he immediately freaks out and he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to grab all of this oil revenue and I'm going to import beef from Argentina and chicken from mm -hmm. Brazil. And I'm going to subsidize it and I'm going to have the highest quality chicken and the highest quality beef in the supermarkets at subsidized prices. So all of a sudden, you start, you start getting a flood of imported food into Venezuela mm. that they are subsidizing. And of course, because he is in a great hurry to get everything stacked up, he starts getting very sloppy on all those contracts, right? And all of his friends start doing all sorts of corrupt deals to restock the shelves. So they're, you know, they're saying to the government that they're bringing chicken that costs $2 a pound, when in reality, the chicken costs 25 cents a pound, and they're pocketing, you know, more than you know, two to three times the size of the contract or, or whatever, like a, a big third or a 60 or 70% of, of the contracted amount is going through their pockets. And they start doing all these sorts of shady things. So what that ends up doing is you start favoring importers over producers. And people slowly started shutting down their factories and becoming importers and just asking daddy government for the subsidized exchange rate to import the chicken. Because when you got that, it made, you know, 10 times the profits of you growing the chicken, actually, you know. <laughs> and so you turn the nation of producers into a nation of speculators and fiat loophole hunters, right? Hmm. And... Of course, all of this subsidized food replacement works when oil is riding high and when <laughs> you, the price is of oil is two to three times what you had budgeted in the year before. But then all the party ends when oil starts crashing, right? And, mm. and that starts happening around the same time as Chavez dies. Mm -hmm. And when Chavez dies and oil starts crashing, that's when really like... All the sort of horrible things, not even worse things started happening because first Chavez died and there was a glimpse of hope to get democracy back into the country. And mm. I, I distinctly remember uh, being in Canada and, and flying back down because I was so convinced that we were going to get our country back that I sold all I, everything I had in Canada. I, I shipped my, my truck and a few things that I wanted to bring back home into a container. And I shipped everything back to Venezuela. And I flew down with my, with my now wife to vote on that election with a big smile. 
I still remember the plane ride down. People were chanting and singing the Venezuela national anthem on the plane, which was just mm. incredibly inspiring. And we went in and we voted and we were winning until 8 p.m. And then at 8 p.m., all of a sudden you start getting radio silence, rumors of you know, corruption at the voting centers, all the typical things that you hear. And then 11 p.m. that night or midnight that night, election official result comes out and, and we lost. The, the, communist, the Communist Party magically wins again, even mm. though all evidence pointed against it. From that moment, I realized that we had lost the country, that mm -hmm. there was just no way we were ever going to get that back. And what year was this? This was 2014 elections. So Chavez died 2013. Mm. This is 2014. Mm -hmm. So almost, almost 10 years ago now. And when this happens, I decided to, I had to go back to Canada. I couldn't mm. stay in the country. But my family was reluctant to leave. They still had hope. <laughs> so mm. I was the only one that left. And my youngest, all of my brothers stayed. My, my two younger brothers and my dad. And my youngest brother was just graduating university and he wanted to start a business. And mm. my dad didn't really want him to start a business in Venezuela. He wanted him to leave. So my brother kept pitching. My dad used to give us a little seat check when each of us graduated so that we could go and kind of take our swing at the bat. We were a very entrepreneurial family. And mm. when, he, when it was my youngest brother's turn, we, no, my dad kept saying, these are all too risky. Let's think of different things. And among his sort of pitches, his last pitch, his sort of most emphatic pitch saying kind of like his, this is it, guys. If you don't agree to this, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to run away from home and, and do this on my own. And mm -hmm. the pitch was mining Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. my dad, I was in Canada at the time. My dad emails me like a few links and he was like, hey, can you take a look at this? Uh, you know, what do you think? Your brother just sent me this. And I took a look at it. And to be very honest with you, like when I first read the white paper and started getting to understand what Bitcoin was, it didn't really blow my mind like many people say it does, because I, I just thought of it as an interesting concept that my, you know, it would be an interesting attempt for him because as I understood it, we could get the ASICs from, uh -huh. from China and then the energy, which was the big input, was heavily subsidized in Venezuela and so was the internet. And so hmm. high level, I said, give it a shot and let's see what happens. And this was around summer 2014-ish. And I fly back later that year for Christmas. And mm -hmm. my brother was smiling ear to ear when all of my friends were looking to leave the country. And what I asked him, I'm like, what, what are you doing? He's like, I'm mining Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, sure, buddy. Like, show me what are you really doing, right? And he's like, no, no, let me show you. I, he takes me to his facility. I see a bunch of computers, a lot more than what he originally had bought. And he says, I'm like, show me. He says, give me your bank account uh, details. I'm like, I give him my bank account details. He sends the Bitcoin to an exchange called Cert Bitcoin which was working at uh -huh. the time, but they've since, one of the guys is in jail, unfortunately. <laughs> uh -huh. The exchange worked better than all exchanges. I mean, a lot of exchanges here today because the money, the cash hits my account within an hour. And oh, wow. at that moment is when I lost, when I just went all down the rabbit hole. It's like, that, that's when all the light bulbs went off. And I said, if my brother can turn Bitcoin into fiat in the most treacherous most hostile economic environment in the planet. And the machines are coming from China and the development is being done in North America and the, and the, the developers and, and the community and a lot of the sort of 
devs are in North America, like this is a truly global phenomenon. And then from that moment, I couldn't stop thinking about Bitcoin and that I, I still haven't till today. <laughs> okay. Wow. So a lot to cover there, but like, let's go backwards a little bit and like talk about like how inflation became such a big problem over there. Obviously the the effects of it are very clear. Essentially, as you said, the domestic production all left and everyone became a speculator on the import export business and you know, a lot of rent seeking and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. why did inflation become such a big problem? What was the sort of trigger for, you know, the boulevard losing so much value against the dollar? So I've made this comment before and I and I really do believe in it. I think inflation is an economic phenomenon. And I think mm. hyperinflation is a political phenomenon. People tend to think of hyperinflation as an extension of inflation, as like some, some really bad inflation. But I would actually challenge that they are two different problems. Because inflation, I see it as just a rational actor's reaction to an increase in the monetary supply, right? Like if you look at North America, monetary supply increased by, you know, call it 50% or 60%. Roughly, that's what asset prices increase by, right? Same in Canada, kind of same in sort of modern democracies, right? They've adjusted to the new monetary base, right? Mm-hmm. What happened in Venezuela was that at the beginning, it starts as an adjustment of the monetary base, right? Mm-hmm. But if you lose all sort of confidence that these people will ever be able to put a lid on this issue, which is what happens in Venezuela, right? Because when you see inflation through the roof, but then you see the constitution got restructured. This guy has now unlimited terms. He's taken over the top oil producing company in the country. He's he's basically eliminated the freedom of press. (laughs) He's basically bullied the country into a new name. Oh, did I tell you he changed the name of the country also? You did, but it wasn't clear what the name change was. It was from, from Venezuela to the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And so once you have done all of this, if you are an actor in the world of capital and you have the option to invest that capital elsewhere, the rational view in light of all of those events is to run. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? And that's exactly what they did. And it starts out as this gradual process of, of orderly sales into dollars. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. what happens is the government catches on to this and they say, okay, guys, no more dollar sales unless they come from me, right? And Mm -hmm. naturally, they don't sell you the dollars, right? So Mm -hmm. what happens is that people start being resourceful and start trading and finding their counterparties in society. So you are a Venezuelan, Jimmy, that has dollars and need bolivares. And I am a Venezuelan that needs dollars and has bolivares. So I will send you bolivares to your local bank account and you will send me dollars from your US account to my US account. And and that creates the market for dollars, the the only honest and open market for dollars in the country therefore becomes that, not what daddy government sells you if you're their buddy, right? Like the, the real mm. market price is what's determined in what's called the black market, okay? Mm. Now, the black market reacts really fast and the, the black, and there are a lot more risks in the black market because 
you are not settling with a with a bank, you're doing a transaction that your local regulator is not going to be able to help you on if anything goes wrong. And so the price premiums and the spreads start widening a lot. And, and it's very spotty. These markets are very spotty. So the black market, this, this idea that you can no longer buy dollars freely, mm-hmm. makes dollars even more desirable. <laughs> and, and this is the perfect example of bad money drives out good money. And the context of this saying is that bad, so in, in Venezuela, bad money would have been US dollars, right? Because the government mm-hmm. has deemed them to be bad money, right? But in mm-hmm. fact, they are not. They are the best money. The government is deeming them bad because it's bad for them, <laughs> right? <laughs> but in fact, and what happens is inevitably, the bad money is what ends up driving their good money out because everybody wants dollars at that point. Nobody wants mm-hmm. bolivares at that point. And now inflation, you know, every, every time Chavez, and, and I'll tell you kind of what created these super waves of inflation. So like mm-hmm. every time Chavez, at least in my mind, mind you, but this is just my, my personal mm-hmm. opinion. But like when Chavez went out and, and expropriated one chicken factory or one chicken farm, Every mm-hmm. other chicken farm in Venezuela was like, okay, we got to start liquidating assets. We got to start taking the, you know, <laughs> firing our staff, looking for places in Florida. Like, and, and so it creates these waves of exit, right? Of like, everybody's just exiting. Their capital is just running away. And that's really what you are seeing. You're, you're see- and the government, instead of saying, hey guys, no, you know, instead of doing things to make the capital feel less worried or less concerned, it is actually like creating ramps for them to leave, right? Like it wants mm-hmm. the capital to leave because the, Chavez knew very smartly that as this money left, so would the people that controlled that money because they would want to mm-hmm. be close to their money. And so mm-hmm. to him, it's actually brilliant because it drained the resources and the brains from his opposition. It's, mm-hmm. it, it sent them to a different country. Right, like he had this this program that I later found out the strategy behind it, and I, I was a pawn. I was a pawn in this program, and let me tell you why. Mm. When I graduated high school, I was dying to get a great, like go to the best university that I could, you know, attend, and that I knew that was mm-hmm. going to be in Canada or the U.S. And Chavez also wanted all bright people that could potentially be revolutionary or potentially be impactful, he wanted them to leave because he wanted them to make it abroad and never come back. (laughs) Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? So he actually Mm -hmm. subsidized people to go, not subsidized, but he gave, he offered this official exchange rate to people that wanted to go study abroad. And because Mm -hmm. I was a Venezuelan that got accepted into a school that was abroad, a university abroad, I was actually able to use this program. And I am here now, right? I left. Mm -hmm. I am no longer in there. I am not his opposition. I am not fighting. I have way too much to lose. I'm fighting from Canada, right? And Mm -hmm. I would argue that his strategy worked because a lot of the people that were in my cohort that would have been avid opponents of of his plan Mm -hmm. are all gone. Mind you, a lot of it is because of, it became a matter of like it would threaten our physical safety, right? And that's why I think a lot of people made the call. When, when you start seeing people you know get shot in protests, 
and people you know get jailed for years unfairly, you start asking yourself some really hard questions. And that sometimes that the, the result of that or the outcome of that is is that you just have to leave. Uh, hmm. So, wow. Well, so essentially, I think what you're saying is uh, like hyperinflation is sort of like a side effect of his political program, which was to essentially drive out a lot of his political opponents from the country so that he could have more dictatorial power. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, it was it was like a war on private capital. You can mm-hmm. you can think of it that way. Like he he thought of his opponents as anything that had to do with capital and anything that mm-hmm. had to do with you know any semblance of property rights or anything that wasn't a commune, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. was not part of his plan. And that was a bit surprising because his original platform was a middle of the road person but when he came into power he just went full out marxist Mm -hmm. which was what scared a lot of people Mm. rightfully so yeah and that led to a lot of capital flight which changed the exchange rate so let me just make sure i understand what you're saying so there's a normal monetary base inflation but what you were saying is there was also a hyperinflation that was political because a lot of people felt threatened by the sort of like takeover of various industries. And that capital flight was what made the hyperinflation really go. Is that right? And then did that lead to like multiple more more money printing as a result because they couldn't afford anything? Or what, what happened like to perpetuate the hyperinflation cycle? Yeah, so it's a, it's a cycle. It's a cycle of this continuous, you know, people in the country, you know, continuing to wanting to protect their capital, and con- it's a cycle, right? It's it's almost like a. Mm-hmm. So to your point, once all of the capital goes away and all the factories are closed, you have no internal production apparatus, right? Like mm. there is just no way for you to produce more chicken or to produce more beef right? The only way you can do that is you either have to recapitalize your banking system so they can lend to your agricultures and producers and kind of jumpstart them again, or you have mm-hmm. to print money to like acquire the producers directly. Either one of them has an inflationary impact, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they ended up having to do. Now, layer on top of this, a couple of things that assisted to this hyperinflation theory. One, the complete collapse of the oil production industry in Venezuela, gradually. Mm -hmm. Every month we would produce less and less oil, less and less oil, less and less oil. Because of that, the oil revenues that were coming into the the government and therefore the dollars that were available to to sell back to the population were every time less, every time less. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? And so there was less of them to go around driving more and more people increasingly to the black market, which... Mm. bid up the black market even faster, right? So mm. you had, you know, a few a few sort of trends layering into that. And on top of that, every time you had a, an election cycle, things would turn even worse. So like, you know, instead of the system becoming more open, like, for example, like I'll give you the case of Argentina, right? Like Argentina mm. went into a leftist government, Right. And was able to switch back to a right-wing government from Mauricio Macri, 
like the last mm-hmm. term. Then it switched back to a left wing government, like they're right now with Fernandez. And there's a good chance, from what I'm hearing, that the 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 sort of right group will win back again. Well, that pendulum, that ability for the pendulum to swing from one party to another, the, the pendulum broke in Venezuela. It stayed to the left, basically. Mm. <laughs> it was never allowed to come back. And every time we were close to an election cycle, it would become even more real that it was never going to come back. Th- does that make mm. sense? And so, mm. yeah, yeah. There was a lot of things that play into the hyperinflation element. So what I was trying to say is that it's not just a, a rational reaction to an increase in the money supply, basically. Mm. There was a political program that was that was underneath it all, which which is absolutely fascinating. So this election that happened after Hugo Chavez dies, and he and you know you think you're about to elect somebody, and then everything sort of just changes all of a sudden and you get radio silence and somehow the wrong guy wins at that point what's the reaction in the country and like how many more people leave and what does the boulevard do at that point yeah so that was well let me let's start with the feeling the feeling was a punch Mm -hmm. in the gut like it was just a collective Mm. like from the entire nation as i told you i remember distinctly the plane ride Mm -hmm. into venezuela for that election and I will never mm-hmm. forget the plane ride out either. Mm. It was like somebody's. It was like everybody on that plane had a relative that had died, and that's that's how you can. <laughs> oh man, this is hard. That's like the the probably the cleanest way to put it is some a part of you or a part of your family mm-hmm. just dies because you know you're never going to see that part again. You know, I yeah. So not not I don't want to get too, mm. too 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 downer. But the feeling, the collective feeling in the country was that it was, it was, we were done. That was it. And that actually started the massive exodus out of Venezuela. The exodus out of Venezuela starts in around 2014, 15. Let me just Google here, Venezuelan exodus. But yeah, the, the Venezuelan exodus, there's, here's the Wikipedia ent- entry since 2015. Yeah, so 2015 is when it really kind of kick-started it. The, the people, the election was in 2014. People had to sort of, in 2014, the immediate reaction after that election happens was, what am I going to list my assets for? What's my house worth? What's my car worth? And what can I get in Panama or Florida with that money? That's sort of Mm -hmm. the immediate switch. And everybody started talking about where they were going to leave, like which country they were going to go to, how hard it was to get a visa here, how hard it was to get a visa there. Who do you know here? Who do you know there? And Everybody starts listing their assets for sale in Venezuela in, in around 2014, 2015. Inflation skyrockets. It's, it, at that point, it starts getting really, really bad. And everybody starts trying to liquidate all of their assets. So two things start happening, which adds to insult to injury. The price of your assets in dollar terms is getting destroyed because mm-hmm. you are trying to sell your assets for every time more bolivares. But the inflation is just, you, you just cannot fight it, right? And so even mm. though your asset price is going astronomically higher in Bolivares, in dollar terms, it's actually less and less every time. Mm. And, and people start getting really disheartened because the, the trade flow is as follows. is you know, Miguel wants to sell his car. Miguel wants to sell his Bolivares, uh, sorry, his car and his house. And he gets a, a, a bunch of Bolivares for it. Then he has to go buy dollars. And the flow is very much one way because everybody's looking to get rid of Bolivares for dollars, but very few people are looking to 
basically buy Bolivar is with dollars. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so the, there is the liquidity on that side is so thin that it just rides up the price. Anybody with dollars will say, you know, I'm going to name my price to let go of this dollar, right? Mm-hmm. And and they get all the pricing power, and so that's that naturally drives up the rate. Uh, you know, helps drive things even faster. And this is why, this is exactly around the time period where my brother starts mining Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. the contrast was so crazy to me because I had friends on one end telling me that they were literally shutting down their factories and they were going to basically rent their apartment to their cousin because they didn't want to sell it at the prices that they could get at the moment. And mm-hmm. I had my brother on the other side asking me, hey, do you know any of your friends that are closing down factories? I'm looking for some extra power. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was the only person looking for this extra power. Everybody else was sad, disappointed. And that's why the juxtaposition of, of the two was so crazy to me, where some of my friends rightfully felt like they were doomed. My youngest brother and his buddies felt like they had found El Dorado, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> and it was crazy the difference. And of course, I sided with the El Dorado guys, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. because I, I very much got into their camp once I understood what they were doing. And, and that's why... So, you know, fast forward into that, like Mario and I, my brother, Daniel, like all of us, and even my, my family, we weren't the only ones that benefited from Bitcoin because when this started happening, people started finding out about Bitcoin and about mining in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And slowly, the desperation out for leaving into a few people turned into, okay, I think I can figure out you know, a way to, to make some, some money here, or at least protect myself in a way that I'm not desperate to leave the country. If I could just shelter some of my assets and produce some Bitcoin and do this in a smart way, you know, I have found a way to produce, you know, or to extract value in a way that I have a decent life. It's not as desperate anymore. It was, a, it was a literally like a life rack, like a way of mm-hmm. mining was a way of creating income through a subsidized hydro and subsidized internet. So mining was a way of monetizing the Venezuelan subsidy into your personal balance sheet, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? Because you would use their subsidized power and their subsidized internet to power your machine and you would get a full price Bitcoin. And so you are in in, in many ways, you are monetizing their subsidy. And, And this is why so many countries that subsidize energy have a big issue with mining. (laughs) <laughs> it's because they don't want to let you know what the real price of energy is, you know? Hmm. Hmm. Well, so a lot of parallels here. You have this very depressing situation where it feels like a relative just died. And and yet in, in the midst of that, there's this huge beacon of hope in like Bitcoin mining because that's a way for people to essentially be able to store their wealth, uh, where which they couldn't do. And it was politically expedient for the government to essentially eliminate a lot of the opposition through this program. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the last two years where <laughs> like the people holding Bitcoin were are the only people that are actually like optimistic. Everybody else is just like completely depressed because of uh, the global pandemic and all the restrictions around it and some, something like that. I, do, do you see that or is it, I'm sure it was a lot worse, but like when you look back on that time and look at what's happening in, in the Western world over the last couple of years, like 
what's your take on it, given your background? You know, it's a good question. My takeaway from this is, or I mean, one of the main takeaways is that there's always a green sprout or something to be optimistic about somewhere. You, you know, you you, mm. you might not be working on it right now, but someone somewhere is working on some really cool stuff with a very, very exciting future. And mm. what I see, you know, e- even if we step back from Bitcoin for a second, like when I have mm. conversations with people around me, I think I see people in sort of two camps, right? Like one mm. is you are either very aware of the driving forces behind an economy and you have a pretty good understanding of what inflation is and how it can impact you. And by understanding that, then you start looking at the world in almost like in slow motion, right? Because you Mm -hmm. say, okay, the Fed has to do this. The Fed has to stay within these inflation targets. These are the levers that they can pull. They're likely going to raise rates to bring down asset prices. And so People that are that understand inflation and understand how the, the different grinds of the economic wheel connect, they are typically optimistic because they can position themselves in a way that, you know, if the market plays out in the way they think it will, they're not going to be too bad or they might even benefit, right? Hmm. I think people that are walking, there are a lot of people that live, you know, that go, th- go about their lives and have no clue how money works. Like, just they don't know. They're, they're told, hey, go do your job. Don't think about it. Just get paid. Put it in some RSPs or some, some 401ks and just buy some indexes and you'll be fine, right? And, and when you're sort of kind of told, hey, no, don't worry about money. Like, you don't really have to worry about how that works. You know, the problems of the world are caused by something else. And when you take that lens of the world, then you will think that, the world is full of problems and they're, just, it's, they're so hard to fix and, and that. But, but what, what a Bitcoiner or somebody that I think has very, a very good understanding of how the monetary pieces work, you kind of see everybody's incentives more clearly, right? And you say, okay, well, sure, markets might be going down because the Fed overdid the printing and now they have to you know, act like a big guy and saying they're going to raise the rates into infinity. But everybody knows that you know, the market's going to break if they do that. So there's going to be a limit to how far they can do that. And so, if, so a lot of people are already tired of thinking down to the next cycle, right? It, it allows you to, to think in, in longer and longer time frames, which is, I think is low time preference, right? Like mm-hmm. what I think inflation does is that it it gets you and and this is what i what i think the fed is is so worried and petrified of inflation because i can tell you something we didn't get into but something i noticed in venezuela as inflation was increasing is that at first you are okay with a deal that gives you your money back in 12 months mm-hmm. a little bit later you're looking for a return on 9 months because it's mm-hmm. so high then a little bit later you're looking you want a return in 6 months and does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then the the longer mm-hmm. the the time that which you the time that you're willing to expose your capital gets compressed and compressed and compressed as inflation goes higher. And as we know, that yields into more and more short-term projects which typically have you know inferior deliverables than long-term projects. Mm. And I think that the Fed is just trying to break really break this idea that we can get into hyperinflation. Right, like they're really just trying to to cap it, because even though you know a dip in the market is dangerous, the potential of this idea 
being perpetuated is even more dangerous. And so I mm-hmm. think that's why they're doing everything they can to handicap this, even if they have to do a recession. Hmm. Wow. So essentially, like, there's a political component to all of this, which I didn't really consider with respect to inflation, that oftentimes it's it's very useful for the people in power to continue inflation for their political program or to hurt their uh, their opposition or something like that. And like, it, it kind of reminds, like the other thing that as you were talking that this situation reminded me of is kind of like New York and California, all the conservative people have pretty much like a lot of them have left, right? Because mm-hmm. of the sort of very extreme policies that they put in place, especially around COVID. That sounds like what happened in Venezuela. Like they, there was a lot of people that would have probably opposed, you know, a lot of the policies and stuff, but instead they all left because it was more expedient for them to do so. And they they, they basically voted with their feet. Um, people like yourself who went to Canada instead of, you know, staying. Like, do you see that dynamic playing out a little bit more going forward because of Bitcoin and because there's this ability to vote with your feet a little bit more? 100%. And in fact, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the net benefit or one of the big net benefits of Bitcoin to the world is that as your capital becomes easier to move and harder to restrict, governments, I believe, are going to have to step into a strategy of wanting to lure in the Bitcoiners rather than threatening the, the Bitcoiners. So like, for example, you know, I think if you look at the ability, so it's sort of a, a layered point that I wanted to make, but like mm-hmm. the, the first one is, you know, t- to talk about, the ability to to hurt countries. So the thing with Venezuela is that, do you remember the sort of Richard Branson party with Shakira at the borders and they were trying to bring food and aid and Maduro closed the bridges with, uh, with trucks, with container trucks? I don't know if you remember. I that. remember that image, but I didn't know that it was because of Shakira or no, uh, Richard Branson. So there was a big, big rally to bring humanitarian aid into Venezuela by way of medicine and food. And the, the trucks mm. came, I, I, there was, you know, the Human Rights Foundation, I, there was a huge number of, of humanitarian groups involved. And what ended up happening was they got to the bridge, Maduro shut down the bridges, did not let the aid come through. And then notwithstanding that, that day he shot like 102 innocent people in Venezuela during the protest that day. And, mm. and the TVs went sh- silent and nobody heard of that again. <laughs> and and of course we had all these sanctions that came in through. Remember? Venezuela got mm-hmm. sanctioned to the, you know, to the nth degree and, and and which brings me to the other point which is who's going to help Venezuela? Mm. Like they the, the Venezuelan regime is essentially a straight up dictatorial regime with known ties to drug dealing and our president is a wanted criminal by the United States. And so is sort of his entire cabinet. And he's been ruling the country for 10 years now. Who's going to help Venezuela? Right? Like if, if you were in the shoes of a Venezuelan person that is looking for democracy and hoping that this crazy Marxist rule is ever going to go away, you know, your, your only hope is to leave. And the one thing I want to say is that there is a risk of this opt-out 
idea, this idea of voting with your feet, uh, Jimmy, that you mentioned, is actually a very, mm. it's a double-edged sword in my view, because mm. in the current time where there is no global police and there is no global way of enforcing a bad actor that is sovereign. So for and the examples I want to give you are Cuba, Venezuela, mm-hmm. North Korea, Iran. Mm-hmm. Those are, in my view, those are lost states. They are states that have no democracy. There is no international desire to go free them or save them. And their leaders are corrupt military officials. And so if you are a person in that country, this is something that I had to really question because you know a lot of people were like, oh, Mao, you could have been such a great politician in Venezuela. Why don't you just start and, you know, get your... And you are going up against every somebody that has all of the resources, all of the guns, no checks and balances, and no international oversight. Who do you think is going to win? Hmm. So what do you do? You exacerbate inflation and get the F out. You mm-hmm. know, like that's... And that's why I'm, I keep going back to this idea of it's, it's really a political issue. And one of my concerns, frankly, is that this concept of opting out is easy, frankly. But my concern is that if we extrapolate this opting out principle and we start opting out of the last free countries or systems that are left, then when we opt out, what the hell are we going to opt into after that? <laughs> right? And so that's why I'm being pretty vocal these days in that we as Bitcoiners need not be afraid of politics. <laughs> we need to be very much involved because I don't think they're going to go away. And the other thing, having experienced what I experienced in Venezuela, is that I also don't think that... For that same reason, I don't think that fiat will go away either Mm. because I think that the monopoly on violence that governments have is ultimately the most powerful force to drive behavior. And we just haven't seen that, right? But if if you go to a country like Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, those people have decades of experience to understand how inflation hurts them. And infinity of reasons to not use their local currencies but they still do Mm. and and they still do because at the end of the day the end bully of your physical world will coerce you into doing so and that's a pretty powerful force yeah and and sorry that's it's a bit you know it's it's a bit contrarian, I think, to to some to, to to some of the thoughts out there. But I just that's you know I'm happy to yeah yeah. I, it's it's very interesting because I think what you're describing is this dynamic of people opting out of crappy places and the crappy places getting crappier mm-hmm. um, rather than like the I mean obviously if you're you're leaving for somewhere and those other places continue to get better because the best and the brightest are going there and what it seems like to me the kind of world that you're describing as people vote with their feet is one where you have like kind of extremes right you mm-hmm. you have you know the libertarian paradise with lots of free markets and things like that and then you have communist you know, like regimes that essentially completely oppress their people. 
maybe some of those people leave, but you know, it's it's hard to get people to leave, and it's you know, it takes a lot of time for things to get bad enough for where people are willing to you know get out of the country. That dynamic, you know, like at some point feels kind of inevitable, and, and you almost see that in the U.S. already, where mm-hmm. you know, like people get out of the states that they that that have uh, you know more restrictions towards the other states which have less restrictions and stuff like that but like california and new york are way more liberal now than they were before because a, a lot of the people that are more conservative as have essentially left so that seems to be the dynamic. Am I wrong? Like, is, is that no, like, what's I, going on in Venezuela? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Now, the, the challenge is that that freedom of mobility, that ability to move from California to Texas or from New York to Florida, mm-hmm. that's great if you're all part of the same system. But I'll tell you what happens. The first Venezuelans that leave, sure, they're able to pick. But by the time the millionth mm-hmm. Venezuela wants to leave, you're now dealing with a humanitarian crisis and nobody wants to take in those Venezuelans. And mm. you cannot leave. And mm. that is effectively what's happening today. If, you're, if you hold a Venezuelan passport today, that's very much a liability right now. And, you know, when was the last time you ever had somebody in your course from, that says, oh, my family left North Korea two years ago. We're happy here now in the U.S. resettling. Like, you don't hear, <laughs> you don't hear those stories. They don't leave. Mm-hmm. Same with a lot of Cubans. Like, sure, you still see rafts coming in every once in a while, but they're not as many as they used to be. And so to your point, you know, you you get this sort of full capitulation in some of these countries, and then the sort of creme of the crop that was able to leave those countries typically goes to the freest countries. And, and I think mm-hmm. this is why the sort of US population keeps getting these sort of renewed antibodies <laughs> of this type of attack every time these crises happen right now you know we you got a flood of venezuelans venezuelans and cubans built florida you know puerto ricans helped build new york, <laughs> new york uh texas and california were almost built half by mexicans you know what i mean like mm-hmm. we're, we're we're a country where every time something happens you know these are the beacons of freedom right and then when i start seeing hearing people talk about opting out of the beacons of freedom I'm like, damn, I don't know what they're opting into, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, they better have a plan. <laughs> you know? like, mm-hmm. And so that's really it, right? And I, I'm, I'm pleased to see sort of you know, more lobbying efforts and, and sort of, you know, us as a community kind of growing up and being able to sit down with regulators and tell them why mining is not going to end the environment and why it makes sense to create jobs and why having a Bitcoin company in a particular state helps you as a governor uh, and the and the people that live in that state, you know, it's. Uh, mm. I think it's part of our inevitable growing up, you know. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. That yeah, like there there is this like very interesting effect of a lot of these immigrants, the best and the brightest, essentially building up these places, and uh, I mean even going further than what what you were talking about, like the. You know, a lot of the European immigrants to the U.S. in the 1800s, you know, they, they were being oppressed in their home country as well, or they were looking for opportunity or, or and things like that. And they built a lot of the country as well. Mm-hmm. So it is very sobering to be reminded that most governments can be extremely tyrannical and mm-hmm. that 
in turn causes a lot of productive people to leave. But the places that they come from can be, you know, it it doesn't tend to turn around very easily, at, at least without some violence or something like that. That is absolutely it. And, and you know, at some point, unfortunately, the internal balance of the two parties can get thrown out of whack, right? And so, mm. you know, it's it's almost at this point impossible for the Venezuelan right, you know, the, the center right, anything other than Marxist party to win anything because the party in power, so this is actually what happens in both Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela. The parties that are currently in power are so doomed that they know the second another body gets democratically elected, they're going directly to jail. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, they are not motivated to let anything democratic happen, right? (laughs) And naturally, what is the other option? Well, somebody somebody should come in externally and say, hey, guys, you're bullying one side of your community. You know, please have democratic elections, right? Which is what the, the approach is today. And Maduro turns around and says, that's cute, guys. What are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And what do you do about it? Do a party? Try to send some food aid trucks? Oh, that didn't work? Okay, well, too bad, guys. Okay, well, we'll come back in a few years. And what does that message, what does that say to the Maduro party? It's like, oh, well, you guys are never going to come in here, so I'm just going to keep killing innocent people. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Uh, so optimistic there. No, um, <laughs> Sorry, no, uh, but, it's a cynical <laughs> in me. But, but yeah, I've just been through a lot of years of, this time is different. We're going to help you. You're uh-huh. not alone, Venezuela. You're not alone. We, uh-huh. You know, we heard them all. Hmm. So. Well, so let's talk about, you know, your work in Bitcoin, because because uh, obviously the reality of inflation and hyperinflation and, you know, like voting with your feet and all, all of these things are very familiar to you. Tell me about your startup and what you're doing and what you're hoping to achieve with it. Yeah, thank you. So when I got into Bitcoin and I started mining with my brothers and family, we made a big mistake, which was we, instead of keeping all of our Bitcoin, we would mm-hmm. reinvest it into more ASICs. And if you remember back in the day, ASICs had a delivery timeline of about nine months, six to nine mm-hmm. months, and you had to pay them all in Bitcoin. And of course, if you reinvested a Bitcoin in you know early 2015 and you spent the money at that Bitcoin price, but then you received your goods nine months later, and you started to t- you had to mine the Bitcoin at a new difficulty and at a new price. Essentially, mm-hmm. we would lose all of the appreciation in those mm-hmm. nine months. And time and again, we realized you know we really wanted to make more Bitcoin, but we just the way that you know we got too excited, which is we thought the best way to do that was to buy more ASICs. But the reality mm-hmm. was that the answer was that you should have never just never sell your Bitcoin. Right, like mm-hmm. <laughs> borrow against it. Do not sell it. Uh-huh. Like do anything you can, but just don't sell it. Right, because it, the appreciation and the the opportunity cost of selling it is too high. So I helped a lot of people set up mining facilities and help a lot of people that were doing with Bitcoin businesses. And whether you had Bitcoin revenue, whether it was for a brokerage or a mining business, you had the same issue. You you all you had was Bitcoin revenue, but you had to invest fiat to grow the business. And every time you did that. Bitcoin just ripped and you lost the upside. Uh-huh. And 
what I wanted and what many of my friends wanted was just somebody to lend us dollars backed by Bitcoin so that we wouldn't have to mm. sell our Bitcoin. And to our surprise, banks didn't think Bitcoin was an asset. <laughs> so they weren't mm. lending it, anything to us based on it. And there was one more shop offering something similar, but you had to have a token and you have to stake the tokens and the interest was paid in tokens. There was some weird tokenomic situation with like a ICO attached to it. And we came from structured finance and our view was that, you know, if we, if we were going to be in the business of lending, we needed to be able to access the cheapest cost of capital. And the cheapest cost of capital typically comes from these hyper-regulated insurance companies and, and pensions and banks. And to interact with those companies, you have to basically be able to sit down at their table and you have to be able to be, you know, have a compliant offering that they're not going to be nervous of interacting with. And so we thought that in over the long term, it was going to be, it was strategically going to be much better for us to not have a token, not to mention there was a huge risk of them being unregistered securities, hint, hint. Mm -hmm. And so we said, we are going to do a very boring company, <laughs> a company that is, mm -hmm. that does not have a token that only deals with Bitcoin loans or Bitcoin back loans. And that is just going to be our product. It's going to be one product, Bitcoin back loans, and we're going to do that better than anyone else. And we set out to do the first Bitcoin back loan in Canada. And in November 2018, after we raised a small seat round, we did just that. We underwrote the first Bitcoin back loan in Canada, which went actually to Francis Puglio at Bills. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that kind of got us introduced to the community. And then from there on out, Canadian businesses and miners started using our services. But from the beginning, I was always really excited to bring this product to Latin America because I knew there were so many people down there that never had been able to access a mortgage because they had never been able to own an asset. But for the first time now with Bitcoin, they could borrow from a Canadian company because now they had an asset that we could take as collateral. Until Bitcoin, mm. you could not do that from Venezuela or Colombia or anywhere in the world. No Canadian lender was going to take comfort in your Mexican vehicle or property, right? But, <laughs> but, with, but with your Bitcoin, it, it changed the game completely. And so we worked very hard to create all of our services in Spanish and, and started working really hard with, with a bunch of educators down south that, that we still work with today. Our strategy has been that we find who we think is the best educators in the Bitcoin in that market. And we set up these very, very long-term relationships with them. I believe every single one we started working with, we still do with work with today. And that started getting people to understand the product. Our products, our, our loans started $500, which a lot of companies that were in this business have loans that start at 10K, 20K. And to me, that was, there's no way a, a person in Latin America is going to test a product that they've never used and, and they need 20 grand of collateral to use it. It was, it was just too out of reach. And so it was very difficult to build the tech and the servicing such that a $500 loan was profitable at the rates that we charged because we charged really great rates. But we did it. And, and, the, and the behavior we saw was exactly that. When Latin, Latin American clients came in, took a $500 loan, understood the disbursement time, the processes, how to pay it back, how the product works, what potential risks there are with it. And then they would come back for a bigger loan and then a bigger loan. Mm. And that thesis is, you know, our, our thesis from day one was that, that this product, as Bitcoin became the reserve, uh, the, the reserve asset for many people around the world, our loans were going to become the equivalent of the mortgages. 
right? As, as in North America, most of your value is, tra- is, is trapped in your best asset, which is your house, and you take a mortgage or a home equity line of credit against it. Our product was going to be the equivalent of that for the equivalent of people's homes, which would be Bitcoin globally. So that was the thesis of the startup. And then we, we lend, uh, today we lend to clients in over 125 countries. We've lent over $500 million to them. We've raised over $100 million from some great investors, you know, including Alan Howard and, and Alexis Ohanian and Parify and a bunch of other great names. But the most, you know, the most, like, to me, the coolest thing is we've built an incredible team. Many Venezuelans work in our team, which fills me with pride. Many Venezuelan expats that were in similar positions as I did, they had to leave the country for whatever reason, and they relocated to Spain or Canada. We work with a ton of them here, and they're super in- incredibly excited to be here. And you know that's one of the coolest things about working in a Bitcoin company is that people feel this sort of excitement. It's like putting on the leaden shirt. It's like you're putting on a soccer team's jersey. You know what I mean? Like it's like you're 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 playing on the field. I remember Jimmy actually, and I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself and 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 fanboy here for a second. I used to listen to you way back because you you've been around for for a really long time, and I would watch you and Francis and all the guys that were at the early conferences, and I saw you guys, and I swear to you, I would look at you guys as if you were like the LeBrons or you know what I mean, like the Hardens, because it was like that's what you do for a living. You Bitcoin for a living, you know and mm-hmm. To me, I still have to pitch myself when I say I work in Bitcoin. That's what I do for a living because I I've, I think it's an immense privilege and and I get to work with people from all over the world thanks to it. So, well, I mean, that sounds really cool, and it is interesting that you're you can target you know places outside of Canada because the collateral is pristine. You can you can you know uh, do loans against it. Are there people in Venezuela that are taking some of these loans and are you how how are you able to get them dollars and what's the deal <laughs> So no it, it's a great question and so I guess the answer is yes so depending on the loan product but between 40 to 50% of all of our loans go to Latin America So the, Latin America is by and large the place of the world where we lend the most into and so yes to your first question there's a lot of people in Latin America that use these products the on, the question on how you get them dollars is a very interesting one, because when the products first started out of the gate, some clients would have bank accounts in dollars in a, in places like Panama or sometimes even the U.S. But increasingly, we started hearing from clients that they needed local currency to pay debt or do whatever. And at, mm-hmm. at first, they asked us to send the disbursements of the loan in Bitcoin. And, mm-hmm. and we were like, well, you're putting Bitcoin as collateral. Are you sure you want us to set the disbursement in Bitcoin? And they're like, yes, our local P2P markets are so deep. It'll be much quicker for me to convert it into fiat uh, if you send it to me mm-hmm. this. And frankly, I don't have a dollar bank account to get the transfer into. And, mm-hmm. and we were like, okay, that makes sense. We'll send it in the Bitcoin equivalent. And then we started getting a flood of requests for stablecoin disbursements. Mm-hmm. And they started, it started becoming increasingly more popular across the board, all, all over LATAM. And Inevitably, we got the question, or we started getting the requests to set up savings accounts in stablecoin format. Because, as incredible as having Bitcoin is, when your when your whole net worth is 10k, 
and it can move 10, 20% in a day or a week, naturally, some people would like to diversify some of that portfolio into a more stable format. And when they found mm-hmm. out what's you know, the, the value prop of stable coins, they became very, very popular in LATAM. And then we created our USDC stablecoin savings account, which is actually where a lot of the disbursements are going these days. So a client in Venezuela will, or Colombia will apply for a loan. They will request the funds to be dispersed right into their USDC account. They will then use that USDC to either settle directly with someone in USDC or convert into Bolívares and, and then settle with them. Hmm. Wow. So you are able to essentially provide loans for people outside your country. That's kind of a crazy concept. It's the coolest thing about our business. I think it's one of those, you know, people talk about Bitcoin leveling the playing field and we get to see it in real, like in real time because we will process a loan for a Mexican client in the same time, speed, rates and quality of service that we do an American loan or a Canadian loan. And I don't think any other financial institution can say that, which is something that I think is the, one of the, again, one of the coolest things about this business. Yeah, it, it's, I never really considered this aspect because in a sense, we're, we're all used to loans being closed off by borders. But I mean, with Bitcoin, you can essentially do the same thing across borders. You can, you could potentially lend to people in Japan or something like that and and not really be a problem because you you have this you know digital collateral that you can you can use to do this transaction mm-hmm. um, and especially if you have stable coins on the other side and if that's sort of freely traded then there's like it works out for everybody you don't need to have it all be in one country that, that's 100% right. And again, you know, that is why, you know, I think we and and perhaps others in the space have been able to grow so fast uh, is the fact that this product, you know, everybody in Latin America, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people in Latin America prefer, if they could, to hold their money in a North American financial entity. Because there is is a big deal of, of foreign favoritism when it comes to financial entities in an emerging world, just because your local banks have gone down so many times that my grandfather, for example, lost all of his savings in the last Venezuelan bank that went under Banco Latino. And since then, there's been a few others that have gone under, you know, ask ask someone from Argentina that question. (laughs) Mm. And everybody will tell you, like, if I had the choice to hold my dollars at Ledin or at Banco de Venezuela or Banco de Colombia or Banco de Mexico, they will likely say Latin mm. because they feel that they can trust, you know, the way we're regulated, the, you know, the oversight, the consumer protection uh, rules that we have to follow many times are stronger than the local ones. And in a sense, they can protect themselves from the theft by government by inflation. So they they're very happy to use these foreign services where they have better property rights in a sense that that's what it seems like 100% and i mean you can ask this to you know anyone else or any other guest but most wealth in latin america is held in florida <laughs> and that is not new and i think that's a pattern 
that maybe won't necessarily change with Bitcoin. Like it will change in the sense that a lot more people can do self-custody now. So it doesn't necessarily mm. have to be in a particular country. It could be with you, right? Mm. But to the extent that the portfolio gets large enough and people need to have sort of management services, I think those clients will continue to favor investor markets. So like Canada, US, Europe, some parts of Europe. Mm. That's so interesting that that you have this international finance that's available because really before that you didn't have the ability to say arbitrage loans against each other and stuff like you can get loans for like one percent in japan for a long time but like no, nobody could really take advantage of it because of the currency fluctuations and stuff instead like if you had uh, sort of like liquidity across markets that you can now with bitcoin you know, like how, how much of that would change and, you know, would quantitative easing essentially cause like inflation faster because of the liquidity going out of your or that uh, the money printing kind of being available more to more places through arbitrage? Yeah, it's uh, I think that Bitcoin is going to play. To be honest with you, I'm actually also surprised that this concept of Bitcoin being global collateral is not mm -hmm. necessarily being blown up enough. <laughs> like mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. me, to me, it's an absolutely. It is the reason why I, you know, I just I haven't been able to stop thinking about Bitcoin since I was able to transact back in the day when my brother sent me that first Bitcoin. It's this idea that you can sell it in any market condition to basically anyone, and you can transfer it from anywhere to anywhere, and it's the same one. Like it's. I completely agree with you. And going back to this idea of Bitcoin being an equalizer. So we see this at Leden today. So most of the clients that use our savings accounts, which are clients that are looking to earn extra interest, not surprisingly come from investor markets, right? Mm. And so, you know, proportionally speaking, the more US clients have, it's have money they want to earn interest on than need for loans because a lot of US clients can get really great rates for for credit they have great access to credit and great rates for credit not the case in latin america so what we see is we have a lot of clients using our savings accounts that are from call it you know wealthy countries and we can use or access that capital to then turn around and lend it to the clients that that don't have access to credit that whose challenges are perhaps different and so mm. we've become this sort of coordinator i would say of or not coordinator but like it's it's a place where things can get balanced it's like an escape valve right where mm. extra money can look for yield and people that need extra credit can access credit and we can kind of pair the two and sit in the middle mm. yeah that that is interesting because you're essentially allowing this arbitrage to happen where you know you have loans that are very very cheap in certain countries and loans that are very expensive and others, and you're able through Bitcoin, essentially having Bitcoin backing, you can loan out from the cheaper interest countries to the higher interest countries and everybody wins there, yep. except maybe the central banks because they <laughs> are not getting the benefits of local inflation the way they think they are. So I'll, I'll give you one funny story. And this is a story that I think reflects our some of our values at Ledin. One time, one VC who we, we, we will not name once asked us the same question. They were they were saying, "So wait a second, you guys are lending money to people in Latin America?" And we said, "Yes." 
And and they said, and are you charging them the same rates as the people in North America? And we said, yes. And they're like, couldn't you charge them more <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just because they don't have access to capital? And And we were like, we likely could, but that completely misses the point <laughs> of what we're trying to do. <laughs> and needless to say, they're not an investor in Latin. We did not basically allow them yeah, to come I, in. And but- it's not like you have a special formula. It's like if you did charge a higher rate, somebody will just undercut you anyway. That, I mean, we want to be this in the long term. We want to be mm-hmm. in this business mm-hmm. for the long term. And the only way we can do that is by offering great products that are very competitive and by being upfront, mm-hmm. honest, and transparent with what we can do and what we can't do. And that's served us well thus far. And, you know, it's what we want to continue to do. We, and we want to continue working only with people that are aligned with with what our vision, I guess, and, and where we want to take it. Hmm. Well, that's absolutely fascinating how it's sort of democratized finance in many ways. It's, you know, you're arbitraging, you know, people instead of like, you know, investment bankers in the FX offices, like taking advantage of this stuff, it, it's like you can, you bring it to the common man, basically. Our, our version of democratizing finance is a little bit different than throwing confetti when you buy options. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I do, you know, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I think to a great degree, that is the, the mission that we would love to be seen as as playing and helping with, which is we want to bring a product that hopefully can help a lot of people and can be one. A Canadian politician said this, and I thought it was a really beautiful line. He says, an entrepreneur needs to be the most empathetic person in a city because for an entrepreneur, when you go in, and, and say you're going into a restaurant, when you buy a sandwich from a restaurant, the person buying that sandwich is happy to pay $5 for that sandwich because to them, it's worth more than $5. And the person selling the sandwich is also happy to sell it at $5 because to them, it costs less than $5. So mm. the seller of the sandwich has to put themselves in the shoes of the buyer and the buyer has to put themselves in the shoes of the seller. So any business transaction takes a great deal of empathy. And mm. to your point, you know, our business works because the rates we offer to the people that are savers are better than what they can get elsewhere. And the rates that we Mm. offer to the people that are borrowers are greater than they can get elsewhere. And the service element in those two is also better than they can get elsewhere. Mm. Wow. Good stuff. Well, so I think we've talked a lot about the actual business and everything else. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? So, you can find us at Ledin.io. It's our website. You can learn more about, yeah, at HODL with Ledin is our social media account. My personal account is at Cryptonomista. So Cryptonomist with an A at the end is my Twitter account. And my email is Mauricio at Ledin.io. Hmm. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on and giving us, I I think, what is certainly a very different perspective than the typical Western world one, especially given your your experience. No, I I really appreciate you having me on. And and it's been a really great chat. I'm also a a big fan of of all the work that you've done. So I just wanted to say it, that thank you for everything you've done for the community. I think people say it enough. So, yeah. You know, when the books are written, you will continue to be on them. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have been here. Well, thank you. 
Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Mauricio can be found at at HodelWithLedin on Twitter and Ledin.io. Until next time, fiat the lenda est.